Again, Lamentations chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 39. As we think about the, the world in which we live in today, the pandemic we have seen unfold over the past few weeks and months has been unlike, most, unlike anything most of us have experienced uh, in our lifetime. Uh, do you think about that? How do you prepare for something like this? How do you survive or even thrive when life seems to come, have come to a halt in certain ways? I think that same question can be asked for any trial or any suffering that we endure. How do you prepare and how do you survive or better, how do you thrive when suffering comes? What should you be thinking? What should you do when those dark clouds roll in? Well, as we continue to face this pandemic in our own nation and throughout the world, I know that there have been certain points of instruction coming from health officials that are helpful for our safety and are hopeful to limit, limit the impact of this virus. But think about that for a minute. When we think about suffering or we think about trials or difficulty on any level, there are certain theological truths that are critical for all of us, no matter what type of suffering we may face. When we've been walking through the book of Lamentations, laments are one of the most theologically rich things you as a Christian can do when life grows difficult, when life grows dark, when suffering is a reality. Lament gives voice to our pain, but it also anchors our pain in confidence because of the truth. So when we think about darkness, when we think about the difficulties of this life, the sufferings of this world, when, when darkness seems to have won the day, lament enables us to cry out and find hope again. As we think about lamentations, we've waded through two of the darkest chapters in the Bible. These last two weeks, Lamentations 1 and Lamentations chapter 2 are some of the darkest chapters in all of Scripture. And yet we come to chapter 3 and we continue in the midst of that darkness, but there is a turning point here. Chapter 3 is not without more darkness, but there is a turning point. In chapter 3, we see the writer continue to process his deep pain, but this pain eventually gives way to hope. A couple of ways that we're going to look at this chapter, at least the first half of this chapter, the first 39 verses of this chapter today, is in these two points. We're going to see, first of all, the cry of hopelessness in the first 20 verses, and then we're going to see the confidence of the hopeful in verses 21 through 39. Let's begin with the cry of the hopeless. You see that in verses 1 through 20. Here in chapter 3, we hear, according to verse 1, the voice of a man Unknown could be Jeremiah if Jeremiah in fact wrote Lamentations, but we're not told exactly who he is. Whoever he is, he certainly closely identifies with the city of Jerusalem and personally feels the deep pain and grief of the city's devastation. So the suffering he sees is also a suffering he feels. I want to read the first 20 verses of Lamentations chapter 3. Listen to what he says, this cry of the hopeless. He says this, inspired by the Holy Spirit. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. 
He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. When you think about this cry of hopelessness, there are really two ways we see the writer processing his pain here. First of all, just the reality of the pain. You see that in the first 18 verses. I mean, this is a dark day. The first six verses indicate, like Jerusalem, the speaker himself has all but died. Yet he hasn't died, even though death would have seemed preferable at this moment. He's experienced all this suffering and all this devastation, and he, he just feels the weight of it all. The judgment of God has been experienced, not just around him, but in him, in a, in a way that he has felt personally. See that there, he's, I'm the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. And he goes on there in the first six verses. In, the, in verses 7 through 9, the focus shifts a little bit on how God has even restricted the speaker's movements. He feels trapped, chained, his prayers unheard. Verses 10 through 18, he goes on to describe God even with a few different metaphors. In verses 10 and 11, he likens God to a ravenous bear or lion. In verses 12 through 13, he likens God to a deadly archer. In the following verses, he likens God to one who feeds him bad food and then treats him harshly. So you can see just the reality of his pain. He's just being honest and open. He's describing the, the weight of the darkness and how all of this has impacted him. So you see the reality of the pain, but you do see the impact of the pain in verses 19 and 20. Look at, look at where, the, excuse me, in verses uh, 17 through 20. Look at where this has left him. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. This is a man who now knows no peace. He does not experience happiness. His joy is gone. Even his hope, his endurance, no more. It's as if he's given up. He's hit rock bottom. 
He's describing a state of despair. And yet in verses 19 and 20, he cries out one more time. Remember my affliction and my wonders. It's as if it's a prayer. My soul continually, continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. I'm remembering these things. I remember the pain. I feel the weight of the pain, but Lord, remember me. Remember this. He's hit rock bottom. You know, some of us know what the bottom feels like. Some of you know that today. Some of you know that from experience, from days or weeks or years gone by. And if you've, if you've not experienced the, the depths of the bottom, at some point you may or you likely will in a fallen world. So then why is it good for us to spend time at the bottom in the text? Why, why is it good? I mean, you may, you may question the wisdom of spending two chapters and now 20 more verses at the bottom with the writer of Lamentations. Why has that been helpful for the past two Sundays and now for 20 more verses? Just why is it helpful to stare at the bottom, to stare at the darkness with the writer of Lamentations? Well, in some strange providential way, we stare at this and as we stare at this, we should find it in some weird way refreshing. It shows us that we're not the only ones who have ever experienced suffering, devastation, tragedy, trial. Texts like this, chapters like this, help you be reminded of the realness of pain. I think a lot of times, in the, especially in the West, I don't, keep, don't want to keep picking on our Westernness, but at the same time, we, we, we don't pay attention to this. We, we act as if sometimes that we ought to just live life painless and without any kind of suffering. And then we're surprised when things come upon us, as if it's shocking in a fallen, broken world that these bad things are happening. Lamentations 1, 2, and now 3 remind us this is our reality in a broken world. There will be days you spend at the bottom. There will be days of darkness and devastation in our lives. And this passage reminds us that we're not alone in that. Sometimes in the midst of our pains and trials, we feel like we're the only ones going through this. That we're the only ones who have ever experienced the darkness. And friends, Lamentations just reminds us that is not simply so. It serves us by showing that, that if you're at the bottom, you've not been the only one who's gone there. Not only that, I think it also shows us that God can and does meet us often in those dark bottom places. Lamentations is a dark book, but friends, it can serve our darkness. It's a reminder to us that we should not be reluctant to cry out in the midst of our own darkness, in the midst of our own tragedies, in the midst of our own sufferings. So when you're at the end of the rope, when you've hit rock bottom, when you are struggling with the weight and pain of life, when that begins to press down on you, know this, know that your cries are not wasted. They're not wasted. God may not have responded audibly or verbally here to the cries, at least in the text, 
The cries aren't wasted because he hears. He hears. Friends, lament is the cry of the hopeless. It's a prayer. It's the prayer of those who are surrounded by dark clouds of pain and suffering. It's, it's crying out in the midst of that suffering. By the time we get to the end of verse 20, it seems as if all is lost. But what we begin to find at the very next verse is a significant shift. There's a hinge right here between verse 20 and 21. The time you get to the end of verse 20, if you've read chapter 1, 2, and 3, 1 through 20, I mean, it seems that hope is gone. This is the cry of the hopeless, but now we begin to see a shift, and that leads us to the second point of this passage, which is the confidence of the hopeful. I want you to hear the following verses. So just, again, we've been in the darkness. I mean, he's just said, God is like a bear lying in wait for me. Under the, the affliction of his wrath, my soul is bereft of peace. My endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Verse 21, but, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust that there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. For the Lord, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion. According to the steadfast, according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? As I said, there's a major turning point here. From verse 20 to verse 21, there's a shift the speaker goes from, I have no peace, my endurance is gone, I have no hope, to, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. This I call to mind, literally, this I cause to return to my heart. When a person is at the bottom, when a person is amidst the darkness, when he or she is enduring intense struggle, you know this, when you've gone through those seasons of pain and, and agony, it is difficult to think clearly. It's, it's hard to, to get your mind right. And so this command or this 
experience that he expresses in verse 21. But I have no peace, I have no hope, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Don't, don't just skip right past that because that is, that is, that's not easy to do. It's difficult, but it's one, it, it's, a, it's a task, it's a, it's a step we must take that is so worth it. The speaker is not saying that he just happens to remember something. In the midst of the darkness, oh, I just happen to remember how good God is. That, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, but this I cause to return to my heart. This I call to mind. He's fighting to remember. This is a conscious battle to recall the truth. This is truth that, that he had been taught before. Truth he had shared or heard, read. And this is a good reminder why it's so imperative for the believer to give ourselves to the regular study of the word of God. You, you know, you may read something today that you might find very helpful. In fact, anytime you read God's word, you should find something that's helpful. It should be remind you something about who God is, the nature of his character, of, of, of why you ought to worship him. It, it ought to give you something to be thankful for, to remind you of who you are and, and what God may be calling you to do in response to what you've read. But sometimes there may be things that we read over a course of, of history or, 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 the, or the course of our lifetime. That as we read through these truths over and over and over and over again, five years from now, they may serve as a foundation for your soul that you need. Maybe today it wasn't something that you needed, but as you've strung together all these promises and truths over the course of your lifetime, there's coming a day when you're going to need that foundation to stand on. And that's what he's striving to, to call to mind He's fighting through the darkness. He's fighting through the clouds. He's, he's battling to remember. And friends, we should know that sometimes it is a battle to remember the truth. One of the most important things you will have to do when you are at the bottom, when you are in the midst of the darkness, one of the most important things you're going to have to do by God's grace is remember call to mind, fight, fight to call the truth back into your heart. Friends, we know that it can be hard work, but by God's grace, it must be something we fight to do. By calling to mind the truth, what we do is we position ourselves to quit listening to our circumstances around us so that we can hear the God who is over us. Let me say that again. It's, it's hard work, but what we're doing when we're calling to mind, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. When we do that, what we're doing is positioning ourselves to quit listening to the circumstances around us so that we can remember the God who is over us. That's what lament helps you do. It helps us to cry out to God in the midst of our pain, but in lament, we also rehearse the truths which we've been taught, which we've read, which we know. So then, he says in verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Well, what is this? What's he calling to mind? What's he fighting to remember? Well, the rest of the passage that I just read down to verse 39, at least... What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through these verses 
I want us to see four heart-changing, heart-altering truths that can lead you from the depths of hopelessness to finding hope again. This is what we see right here in the text. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. I have hope now. How, How can he go from hopelessness in verse 18 to hope in verse 21? Well, these are the things that he remembers. This is what brings hope back to the forefront again. First thing that he does is he remembers the faithfulness of God. He remembers the faithfulness of God. Notice he says, I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. Verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, while God's people had endured the painful consequences for their sin, the destruction did not mean that God had abandoned his covenant. It felt like it. It looked like it. The writer here reminds himself, I have hope because I know that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. When he's referring to the mercies of God and the steadfast love of God, he's referring to the covenant commitment, the covenant love that God has for his people. God has promised long ago that he's committed to these people no matter what. And the devastation, the destruction of Jerusalem, even the, 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 the fact that the temple's gone, did not mean that God had withdrawn his love and his mercy from his people. Felt like it, it looked like it, and sometimes we, we feel that, don't we? But it wasn't the case. Friends, when you consider the devastation of Jerusalem, it may very well have seemed that God's covenant was gone. No more. But if God is truly a God who is faithful to his promise, then surely this couldn't have been the end. Yes, it was true that God kept his word in judgment. All the way back to Deuteronomy, you can go see, he warned that this would happen. And then through the prophets, he warned them time after time again that this was going to happen if they didn't repent. So yes, we we know that God keeps his word in judgment, but that did not mean that his covenant faithfulness to his people was taken away. And so it's these promises that had long been given before that the writer calls to mind. It's the fact that these promises still hold true that begin to bring hope again in the midst of the trauma. Now, I know that these verses here, if you know anything from Lamentations, you know verses 22 through 23 or 24. In fact, we we like to just extract them out. Most people don't even have any idea that these are in the context of Jerusalem being leveled by God as a form of judgment. So we'll put them on little cute things on our wall and and just have all of these cute, cute things with the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And it's true, but friends, when you put it in the context in which it was originally written, wow, it's, it's, it's more impactful to us. These promises had long been given to his people. And it's the fact that these promises still hold true that bring hope again. So whether it's in the horror of Jerusalem's devastation, death, or whether it's some personal tragedy and suffering that you experience today, the same thing is true. Now, the covenant has changed a bit, and you get to the New Covenant in the Bible, in the New Testament. 
But the character of God still remains true. He is for his people. He is committed to his people. He is committed to love and care for the good and well-being of his people. He's faithful. It's the fact that God's steadfast love never ceases that gives us hope again. The faithfulness of God turns trauma back into trust. Notice as he recalls these truths, he he comes to the conclusion in verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Twice now, in just two or three verses, he says, I have hope. I have hope, verse 21, I have hope in him. Again, verse 24, he's my portion. Reminds me of Psalm 73, verse 26, psalmist there says, my flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Friends, when we are laid bare, what we often find is that God is all we need. God is faithful. We need to remember his faithfulness. Just a couple of practical things. How do we do that? How do we remember? How do we call to mind the faithfulness of God so that we have hope amidst the darkness? Obviously, staying regularly in God's word. This is, as we read the scriptures, there may be days where we just we, we don't feel engaged with, with God through his word, but as we continue to, to build that foundation and to, to, to rehearse the promises of God and the truth of his word, we continue to strengthen that foundation on which we stand. That's why we need personal time in the word. That's why we need each other as, as we come around to God's word in Bible study and corporate worship to hear God's word preached. Even as we join together, and one day, Lord willing, we'll get back to this soon, even as we join together in corporate worship, One of the things that we are missing today is singing. One of the things that we do when we sing is that we're not coming to a concert when we come together to church. Oh, oh, that was a nice song. No, we come to remind ourselves. Part of corporate worship is singing to each other, reminding each other of what is true. Yes, we're singing to God and and declaring him as glorious and, and worthy of praise. And so we sing vertically, yes, but there's also this horizontal element where we sing of these truths to each other to remind ourselves what is true of God. And even singing songs of lament. We've been trying to insert those this month, so we got it done two weeks. We tried to insert some of these songs of lament this month just because we need this language as we sing these truths, even amidst the darkness. It helps us remember. It helps us to cry out to God, but it helps us to remember who he is so that our trust is renewed in him. We need these kinds of songs. on On the Facebook page today, I listed some songs. A couple of those are songs of lament. Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul and that other one, I Will Remember from Psalm 130, two that really help you in seasons of darkness and struggle to cry out to God and yet to, re- not, to find your hope renewed in him because of who he is. Surround yourself with people you know will speak truth into your life. This is one of the blessings of Christian fellowship. Another thing I came to mind as I thought through, well, what are ways that we can remember is, is read good Christian biographies, especially those who endured great seasons of trial and watch their example as they put their hope and trust in the Lord. You'll be encouraged by that. Remember that God is faithful. Number two, we need to know that waiting on God is good. Waiting on God is good. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. 
to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Verse 25 begins with this biblical confession and acknowledgement of God's character that God is good. Think about that. God is good. In the midst of all that's just going on, he's confessing here the Lord is good. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Here, God's goodness, though, has a specific focus. It's to those who wait for him. He is good to the soul who seeks him. You go to passages like Psalm 34, you can read verses 9 through 11, and you see just how this is often referred to, God's goodness to those who wait. But again, think about what he's saying here, especially in light of what he's previously said in verse 4 of the same chapter. He says, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. Later on, he says, he has bent his bow against me. Verse 25, the Lord is good. I mean, is this a schizophrenic? I mean, is he lost his mind? Is he crazy? No, you you see him acknowledging the pain. He's, He's verbalizing the pain. He's not suppressing it. He's verbalizing it. He's communicating. He's crying out in the midst of his trauma, in the midst of his pain, and yet... He reminds himself of the goodness of faithfulness of God, and therefore he's able to say, the Lord is good. Despite how I feel, despite that my life feels bereft of peace, despite of the happiness I've seemed to lose, I still acknowledge that the Lord, he is good. The same man who experienced the severity of God in judgment now confesses the goodness of God. His assessment is this. If the God who punishes is the God who is also good, then all of this devastation is not for nothing and cannot surely be the final word. Therefore, I wait. Verse 26, we read that it is good that one should wait quietly doesn't mean that we shouldn't cry out. He's not calling us to silence totally, but it's a posture of humility that I wait patiently and quietly before the Lord. And this waiting, he says, will eventually be rewarded with deliverance, with salvation. Not specified there exactly what it is, probably alludes to to the future restoration of the city one day and maybe something even beyond that. But waiting quietly or in silence leads us to recognize God's power and trust his faithfulness and goodness. It's in the midst of those times of waiting that we are reminded about who God is. It's a position of humility and trust. Friends, it is good to be silent and wait for the Lord because of what the Lord teaches us. There is a time to cry out. There is a time to do the first 20 verses. There is a time to air your grievances to God. Listen, he's big. He's big enough to handle it. He can handle your cries. He can handle your complaints. He can handle the the things that you bring to him. So there's a season where you air that out to him. But friends, there's also a time where you move from that cry to a season of calmness and silence and waiting. Waiting on God's purposes to unfold. God allows and he invites us to come to him with our pain, but he also calls us to enter into a posture of humble trust. 
There's a time for verses 1 through 20, but friends, we also need to get to verses 24 through 39. Right? We, we don't need to, to skip verses 1 through 20 and only go to verses 24 through 39. We, we need to spend time there in those first 20 verses. But don't get stuck there. Don't get stuck there. And as you call these truths to mind, you're going to be moved. You're going to be moved to this calm period of waiting and trust in God again. The speaker goes on to explain why the waiting is worth it in verses 31 through 33. Let's look at those. So a third thing. So we remember the faithfulness of God. We acknowledge that waiting on God is good. There's a third thing that we should remember from this, and it's this. It's better days will come. Better days will come. Why do we wait on the Lord in the midst of our deepest grief and sufferings? Because he is a God of compassion. He's a God of compassion. You see that there in 31 through 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he caused grief, he will have compassion. According to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. I think these verses are the key to the, to the writer's theology, to understanding the, the core of, of his understanding about God. Yes, God is the one who is the subject of all of the activity in verses 1 through 18. You see that again. He has driven me. He has made my flesh. He has besieged. He has done all of these things. But now in verses 31 through 33, you see he's the subject of different activity. He will have compassion. He does not willingly afflict. He will not cast off forever. See that God casts off, but not forever. God brings grief through discipline, but he will again show compassion. God does afflict, but not willingly. It's not his heart to do so intentionally without disciplinary purposes. He's saying here that the covenant love of God will outlast the effects of his just reaction against sin. God takes no pleasure in inflicting pain. Sometimes people read the Old Testament and think, how can I worship a God who just delights in destruction? He just says if he's just this happy God who just delights in all of this tragic activity. That's not the God of the Bible. God takes no pleasure in inflicting pain and suffering into the lives of his people. But when that pain and suffering does come for his sovereign purposes, it will have its limit. It will have its limits for those who are especially in Christ. Friends, we know that one day Jesus will return and he will make all things right. And this is a reminder to us that this is not the end. As painful and as difficult and as traumatic as this life can be, it's not the end. If we're in Christ, we have hope. Maybe hope of restoration and peace and happiness again in this life. But if not, we have eternity awaiting for us where there will be nothing but endless joy and hope and happiness and peace. Because if you're not a Christian, though, you're watching this, you're listening to this, and you think, well, I don't know if I'm a Christian. That, that promise is not true of you right now. You don't have that confidence, but you can if you would look to Christ. He came, he lived, he died on the cross to bear the punishment and burden of our sin. If we would look to him and hope in him, the promise of the scripture is that our sins will be forgiven and we'll be saved and we'll be adopted into the family of God and we will receive these promises once and for all. But we know 
that the final word is yet to be spoken. Better days will come because God is a God of compassion because of the abundance of his steadfast love. And a fourth truth, we saw this last week, we'll affirm it again this week because it's all the way through this book, is that we are in sovereign hands. We need to remember that God is faithful. We need to remember that waiting on God is good. We need to remember that better days will come. And we need to remember that we are in sovereign hands. Verses 34 through 39, just again, point to the reality of God's sovereignty and his justice. This is amazing, but in three chapters of the darkest book of the Old Testament, I mean, we've seen the the spectrum of the attributes of God, haven't we? And he's just, he's righteous, he's holy, he's good, he's faithful, he's loving, he's merciful, he's sovereign. As the man who has rehearsed these attributes, that God is faithful, that God is merciful, that God's steadfast love never ends, that is compassionate, that he is good, he now finishes out this section by looking to God's justice and his sovereignty. The justice Jerusalem endured was severe. And it still leaves some lingering questions, even in our own minds today, that I'm not sure will ever this side of heaven be satisfied. Verses 34 through 36, you see that the discipline and justice are still in view here. See that there, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. You, You see that these verses still in view, even though he's engaged with the truth about who God is. He still understands it's been painful to see his discipline unfold. In several translations, such as the New Revised Standard Version, verses 34 through 36 read this way. More is a question. When all the prisoners of the land are crushed underfoot, when human rights are perverted in the presence of the Most High, when one's case is subverted, does the Lord not see it? Somewhat rhetorical question. The obvious answer is yes, he sees it. And friends, that only leaves us one way to go. If he sees it, and if he has, according to the previous verses, brought it about, though he caused grief, the text says, then the only pathway to go is to trust that he is fully and absolutely sovereign. In some mysterious way, God's sovereignty stands over all that happens, the good and the bad. It's an uncomfortable reality. It's a reality that we fully do not comprehend in our finite nature. But it's only uncomfortable because we aren't God. We're not God. And this sovereignty is also connected to his justice. So at the end, who can complain about the punishment for his sins? God, yes, brought all of this grief to bear, but it was in response to their rebellion and their unrepentant sin. Therefore, who can complain? Truly. They brought it upon themselves. You see, God would not and could not allow his own people to continue in rebellion against him. He had to put a stop to their waywardness, and that required heavy-handed discipline. But as devastating as it was, his heart is truly one of steadfast love and mercy. As horrible and destructive as the fall of Jerusalem was, it would ultimately be for their own good. We have to believe that God does the same in our lives. God does not enjoy seeing you suffer. 
He does not lie behind every bush ready to do you wrong when you mess up. His ultimate plan for you, friend, if you are a Christian, his ultimate plan for you is to do you good, to conform you into the image of Christ. And sometimes he will use and bring about painful realities to to wean us more and more away from ourselves and away from reliance upon other things so that we fully see him and fully trust him as we were designed to do. His ultimate plan for you is good. And all of that stems from a heart that is motivated by love for you. Have you ever dropped something significant or expensive into deep water? Maybe a cell phone or a ring, expensive piece of jewelry, it just kind of goes off. Maybe you're on a boat and it just goes off and, it, and as soon as it hits the water, it's like, it's gone. Like there's no getting that back, especially if you're in deep water. I mean, it's gone forever. Whereas there will be days when your hope seems like a cell phone falling into the ocean. Seems like it's gone. There's no getting that back. But it's not as if, think about that. You drop a phone in the water, you go back to the store and buy a new one, right? You know, there's not a store of hope. I just go buy me some more hope. Well, there kind of is something you have to fight for. And God wouldn't have you fight for something that's not truly available. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Hope springs from recalling the truth. Friend, are you in a time of suffering, of mourning, of struggle, a time of darkness? Do you feel like you're at the bottom? You feel like you're on your way to the bottom? You feel like you've just spent time at the bottom and your way up? I just ask you, what is it that you're calling to mind? And if you're there, if you feel like you're on your way there, fight by the power and grace of God in you to recall the truth about God. These truths may not change your circumstances but they will give you a foundation to stand on in the midst of them. So you don't look at the circumstances around you, but that you see the God who is over you. God is faithful. Waiting is good. Better days are coming. And yes, we are in sovereign hands. So cry out to the Lord with your pain. But friend, don't stay there. Remember what's true and you will find your weak and weary heart refreshed and renewed in hope once again. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that you are a God that can be trusted. That in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the devastation of our lives, When our soul is bereft of peace, when we feel like happiness is gone, our endurance is perished, that we have no hope. Father, we can have hope again. Lord, would you help us to fight through the darkness and the clouds and the struggles of this life? Would you help us by the power that's in us to fight to remember these true things? 
to cling to them as our confidence and to look to you, not around us, but look to you, the one who stands over us and trust in you despite what we see, knowing that these are simple days that will go by the wayside. And there's coming a day. There's coming a day that will be eternal. And there will be no more suffering. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more quarantines. There'll be none of this. There'll be the fullness of joy. And that will be the case, Lord, because you are a God who is radically and sovereignly committed for the good of your people. God, would you let that be our hope and our stay today? Would you give us confidence and renew our hope in Christ Jesus this day? Thank you, Lord, for this word from Lamentations, as dark as it is. Thank you for the hope that we can find in it, for the reminders of who you are. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.